Geico presents, uh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. Contour from Cox has all your favorites, all in one place. And with the Contour Remote, you can use your voice to find them on live TV, on demand, and streaming apps like Netflix, Prime Video, and more. See Cox.com for details. Hey, 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 everybody. Hello, friends. We have a couple of quick Art History Babes Nation updates for you. What's going on over here in our world? First off, we have a new featured artist. Zach Clark. You might recognize him from some of our previous episodes, such as Corita Kent or Albrecht Durer. And our upcoming episode on Robert Rauschenberg as well. Which is going to be great. It's going to be Just as rambly and crazy (laughs) as the first one. So we're officially blaming that on Zach. Yeah. But you've maybe heard him before on the show. Um, He's a friend of ours, and he's an artist, a printmaker, and he is our featured artist, and he has created a beautiful print set called Confabulation is a River in California, and it is available for purchase on the Mm -hmm. Art History Babes website. It's a really interesting print set and just a really interesting concept and if you want to learn about it learn about the story behind it and learn about zach and his process and his life as an artist you can head over to our youtube channel and watch our featured artist video because we're on youtube now guys we got quite a few videos already we're on youtube we're just you're, we're just expanding the content you can see our faces now yeah our faces are gonna match our mouths <laughs> Watch the words come out. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's cool. It's a pretty cool thing. So we do, we have a handful of videos up right now, and we're going to keep making them and keep turning them out for you guys. So be sure to check out the YouTube, subscribe and like, and hit that little bell so you get notifications when we put content out there. But yeah, so just some fun, exciting things. What else is going on? Do we have other exciting things to talk about? We're going to have new merch coming out soon. Oh yeah, merch. Summer merch is coming soon, which means spring merch is going to be going. So if there's anything that you've been thinking about getting and haven't pulled the trigger now might be the time now might be the time so head over to arthistorybabes.com check out our merch check out our featured artist check out all of our stuff that we're working on for you lovely people and for you lovely patrons shout out to all of our patrons on we love you so we love you so much patreon.com slash arthistorybabes you guys make it possible so thank you you're all amazing and uh let's get to the show from Cabernet to Montmartre, they're here to play the art history babes. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. And we are the Art History Babes. And today we are joined by a very special guest. Heidi Lee, gallerist and owner of the AFA Gallery in New York City. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Corey. Hi, Natalie. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you. What's happening? What's going on at the gallery? 
Well, um, quite a bit of pandemonium. We're just um, <laughs> installing a big retrospective and exhibition that is going to celebrate 35 years of uh, AFA Gallery, and it opens Thursday night, and uh, we're having a champagne reception from 6 to 8 p.m., so, you know, if you have any friends in New York that want to pop in, <laughs> that's fine. For sure. <laughs> It'll be um, fun. So, AFA, can you tell us a little bit about your 35 years as a gallerist and AFA and, and kind of what it's about and what it stands for? Sure. Um, AFA stands for An Amazing Fine Art. And in 1983, uh, I incorporated as An Amazing Gallery and the focus of that gallery was conceptual animation art. It was something that I felt very passionate about, and it was the the raw animation drawings, cartoon expressionism, and the storyboards by Mary Blair and the backgrounds by Ivan Earl, and the work that still today is breaking glass ceilings at auction. And um, it was before the big, fat commercialization uh, of the industry because between, let's see, between 1990, see, I have this incredible timeline here. It's really pr- pretty extraordinary. Between 1992 and 1996, the Warner Brothers studio stores opened and closed 130 stores. Uh, many of them had animation galleries and Disney also expanded at an alarming rate. So they both jumped on this bandwagon that was driven by an explosive market. And celebrities like Michael Jackson and Steven Spielberg and Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg were competing at auction. And um, there was one collector from Staten Island who set the record for an animation cell, and he bought a Mickey Mouse cell from 1935 for $286,000. Wow. <laughs> So that record still stands, but with the emergence of CGI or computer-generated imagery, traditional animation just disappeared. It didn't exist anymore. So then the gallery evolved, and I just started to focus on fine art that was fun. Can you elaborate a little bit? I like that phrase a lot, fine art art that's fun. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, sure. I I think that the, the core of my vision throughout the entire 35 years has always been work that is rooted in figurative technique and created with a, a, a unique vision and executed with technical virtuosity. And I like layers of dark complexity. I always have, always will. <laughs> Even with the fine art that was fun, you know, there, there were layers of complexity for sure. Um, so in 1997, we launched uh, the Peanuts paintings in the United States. And Tom Everhart was the singular protege of Charles Schulz. And he's one of the few living artists that has ever had an exhibition at the Louvre. And he does these larger-than-life pop art Peanuts paintings. They're so commercial now and very famous in the world. But he's a wonderful artist that um, does huge Snoopy canvases. And they're, you know, they're very colorful and people gravitate towards them. But they're very fun, for sure. And so that was the beginning of a 20-year history with this artist and most of his major solo shows he did in my gallery. So that was the first real powerhouse fine art that is fun property. And the second one was the secret art of Dr. Seuss. And Dr. Seuss, do you know, do you know what he was a doctor of? 
I don't. He wasn't. It was a big fat lie. His father wanted him to be a doctor. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) But he, he was a closet case fine art painter. And so after he passed away, there was a wonderful book that was critically acclaimed called The Secret Art of Dr. Seuss. And this uh, museum tour was launched at my gallery a couple of years after we started with Tom Everhart. And it's it's wonderful artwork. So it has since been on museum tours around the planet. And uh, because he was a really amazing artist, he had a huge, prolific career. It started with um, advertising. Mm-hmm. And then it moved into the children's books, you know, that we're all very fond of. And he was a poet. He had this incredible rhythm. I know one of his poems. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. yeah I'd love to. Okay. It's not for kids. That's okay. That is, o- okay. That is okay. <laughs> okay. Mrs. Van Bleck of the Newport Van Blecks was so goddamn rich. She had gold-plated sex. Whereas Miggles and Mitzi and Bitsy and Sue had the commonplace thing and it just had to do. <laughs> I that uh, my new favorite song. <laughs> just just opened up the world of Dr. Seuss for me. <laughs> so um yeah, fine art that is fun. And um uh, after that, I think that the original work just really started to dry up and disappear. It's just so hard to find and and so the gallery evolved again. And in keeping with the um, natural momentum and, and, you know, what rocks my socks, I just moved into contemporary surrealism. So, you know, that was a whole interesting new genre. So what exactly drew your interest to animation particularly? Like, what about that? Yeah, I was curious about that, too. Like, did you have a draw toward animation before you were interested in fine arts or did you kind of lean toward it after you had already broken into fine arts? Does that make sense? Like which one came first? Well, I, my, my art history, my art degree, you know, had um, plenty of art history, but but I was a professional dancer. And then I hurt my leg. Um, I had a relationship with a lawyer in San Francisco and he was laid off. So we moved to get to New Jersey. And in New Jersey, I went and um, got a job at a, at a health club. And I just, and I, I wanted to use the weight equipment to rehabilitate my leg. And, um, then I, I discovered that I found sales to be a creative outlet and it was fun. So I just turned into one of the top managers in the biggest health club company in the world within well, less than a year. After four and a half years, um, I, you know, I just was burnt out and, you know, and I sort of stumbled into a circle gallery and that's where I discovered animation art. And six months later, this wonderful crazy man from, from Los Angeles came in and we bonded and he had a briefcase full of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck cells with the drawings that were behind them. And so this was the first time I ever saw conceptual art. But it's the conceptual art is much more raw and free than, you know, than the animation cells. And so I um I promptly took them on consignment and started my own animation gallery in my own dining room. I mean <laughs> that's so it was really with a with a a, a pile full of animation cells and a, and a mountain of inspiration that, that it began. 
And wow, um, that's yeah. really that's a really like, <laughs> unique story. Like, it is. In, it's not in a, terms of the art world, yeah, it's not a straight path. <laughs> no, no. And so I suppose that um, after this happened, the, the animation art world just went, you know, it just went bonkers. And between 1992 and 1996, uh, the Warner Brothers Studio Stores opened and closed 130 stores. And a lot of them had animation galleries. And Disney also expanded its gallery program at an alarming rate. So they were both on a bandwagon that was driven by this explosive popularity. And celebrities like Michael Jackson, Steven Spielberg, and Whoopi Goldberg um, competed at auction and and the glass ceiling was broken when a Staten Island collector won a 1935 Mickey Mouse cell from a Disney short for $286,000. So much money. That's a lot of money. That is a yeah. lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, and then after that, like I said, with the emergence of um, computer generated imagery, it just all went away. So I think one of the big things that I'm excited about announcing uh, with this show is that um, in 2018, in keeping with the um, momentum of the way that I've evolved and moved and shaked <laughs> over, over the decades, I have a new vision for the future. And I'm going to open uh, Primary Contemporary at AFA Gallery. And this new contemporary art space is going to focus on emerging and established artists that work across diverse artistic disciplines, uh, with a dedication to presenting compelling programming, not only in the United States, but in France. So I'm super excited about that. That is very exciting. I read about that you have strong ties with French culture and that you received the Order of Arts and Letters. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that led to this honor? Well, in 2005, I had a proposal accepted from the bank um, to acquire uh, a property in France that is an 11th century fortress built on a 9th century chapel. There's a moat and a drawbridge and a fresco of Mary Magdalene on the ceiling of the uh, 9th century chapel. And, wow. Um, it's, yeah, it's really cool. It's a castle. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's the, the vision was to promote art and culture in the many um, exhibition spaces that were created and and I did that. You know, I've had um, revolving exhibitions, um, you know, with French and American artists there. And I've had master classes with Wendy and Brian Froud that were amazing. And there were students from all over the world, like Africa and Australia and Chicago and England. And <laughs> it's really amazing. And uh, I've had an opera and classical concerts and medieval concerts and vernissages monumental sculptures installed and I created a beautiful gift shop so the tourists that come uh, can have exclusive souvenirs or something to drink and um, there's about 23,000 people that come to the chateau during the season which is from April through um, early October and I keep three university interns in the uh, in the tower and I live there in the summers wow and um yeah, it's a living. Yeah, <laughs> one way to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's it's, it's that, really that interesting. That sounds that sounds spectacular. <laughs> oh, I wanted to just also respond and just tell you with that honor that was bestowed upon me, it was 
It was also because of the um, the educational programs for kids in France and and um, supporting a couple of French artists here in New York. The contributions that I made in France were honored literally with this medal, and I was knighted by the French Ministry of Arts and Culture. I so read I, that. The only lady knight so far on your podcast. Yeah, I, I would say yeah. I would say that's probably <laughs> unless I don't know, maybe maybe Jenny's hiding something from us, or yeah, if it were going to be anyone. <laughs> but yeah, wow, that's that's wow, incredible. I am super like, impressed right now. So, what was your official knightly title? Like, how would you say it? Well, in English, it's um, a Chevalier uh, of Arts and Letters. Oh, oh wow, fancy sounding. I don't even think I could say that. <laughs> My you can just call me Dom. 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 Oh, I love that. Dom. <laughs> that is a title. Yeah. Like, that is a title to have. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, um, so Heidi, you have stated you have that stated your, that like, personal your mantra is personal art mantra is necessary. Can you elaborate on what that statement means to you? Fine. I was hoping you wouldn't ask that question, but I will answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I can, I can explain that very clearly. When I was 20, Three years old, I moved into my first solo apartment, and I had a, a patio table with a big yellow umbrella. I had a big wad of chopsticks that I had heisted, <laughs> and I had a futon on the floor, and I had three air tape prints. That was it. Like, you know, some clothes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had no furniture, but I had art. <laughs> and I think that, you know, a, a gallerist, is always talking with people about acquiring artwork. And it's a very different process than going to a grocery store and buying, you know, some enchiladas. Because with art, some people think that it's a luxury. But in fact, you know, if if you let go of the money, it comes back. And if we have beauty and color and creativity in our lives and surround ourselves with that, it just it changes the quality of our lives, you know, and, you know, we can get it in different ways. But to have to have it in our own environment is something that to me is absolutely necessary. Like, you know, I just could not even imagine living without it. Awesome. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. We consider it very necessary over here as well. <laughs> Modern fertility. Dang, I really wish I could sing because I wanted to follow that tune, but I cannot sing. I can't sing either, but I just, I like making little jingles. How about it, Nat? I mean, you probably thought about your next step in your career relationship, but what about planning for a baby or a metaphorical baby? Or or planning for not a baby. All of those totally reasonable (laughs) options. Exactly. As a woman, we kind of have to make a decision to either have or not have babies. And Modern Fertility is here to help with that decision making. Modern Fertility is a quick and easy hormone test you can take at home. So if you're thinking about trying for a baby or you want to know maybe what your options are for the future or or if you just want to know more information about kind of how all that works and your hormone levels and just, you know, generally be informed about your reproductive health, which is a great thing to be 
be informed of, Modern Fertility is here to help. So I was able to take it and got my results back within like eight days pretty quick. It took me to the website where they had all my information, and I'm happy to say that nothing came back alarming. It was really easy to understand, and they use very simple language, but they also have options where you can read into the different hormones more closely. So if you do have something that maybe is slightly out of whack, you can read more about it and figure out you know, how to raise or lower or what that might mean for your day-to-day life. It's really interesting. Or your fertility, I guess. I was kind of just looking at it for my day-to-day. But um, speaking from experience, like, yeah, I definitely feel a little more empowered just knowing that all of my hormones are working and doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, that is definitely good news. Also, It is very affordable compared to similar testing. Um, Oftentimes that kind of testing can cost over $1,000. But with Modern Fertility, you can get the exact same information for just $159. That's such a good price. Yeah. Plus, you can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse once you get your results. So you can get answers to questions that you might have, specific questions that are related to your results. And that is really valuable. Yeah, so it's just great information to have, very affordable price, very easy to do, comfort of your own home, don't even have to go to the doctor's office. And right now, Modern Fertility is offering Art History Babes listeners $20 off their test when you go to modernfertility.com slash historybabes. That's $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash historybabes modernfertility.com slash history babes modern fertility so i can tell you about the expansion of of my gallery because it was quite a um uh, a brick and mortar fiasco the first gallery like i said was in my dining room so i opened the first brick and mortar gallery in uh, westchester new york in hastings on hudson in 1989 and I kept that one for 17 years. So the first Soho Gallery was in on West Broadway, right next door to Mary Boone in 1993. And I've been in Soho ever since. And over the next 20 years, um, there were a dozen pop-ups, uh, including like at the South Street Seaport and on this, um, Southampton, three different galleries in Soho, and then um, a permanent location in New Orleans on Royal Street and in Las Vegas as well. But now those have been closed um, recently, in uh, in 2016 and 17, I uh, closed New Orleans and Vegas. So it's just New York and France. C'est la vie. <laughs> yeah, not bad spots at all. Yeah, those are those are good good spots to yeah. be. I'll always remember when um, we had the grand opening uh, at New Orleans. It was like no other experience. You know, New Orleans is an incredible city and. Honestly, I think I could eat myself to death like a dog in New Orleans. The food is <laughs> so good. But we had a um, a parade with a marching band, a marching jazz band. And in the front, there was this old guy with this little cart that had my mom on it and, and my aunt. And they were all in stovepipe, you know, cat in the hat hats. And so was the donkey and the driver of the little cart and the donkey were obviously drunk. 
<laughs> and the marching band behind them was extraordinary. And then all these people just started hanging off of their balconies and there were um, these Mardi Gras beads like all over the place, lighting up the, the morning sky. And we, we got to the gallery and there was a mayoral proclamation that was given to us by a politician with a ribbon cutting. And then we had these wonderful uh, drag queens serving vodka martinis at 11 a.m. It was amazing. It sounds magical. Yeah, that like <laughs> that story just kept getting better. Yeah, like where else did all of those things happen? <laughs> Nowhere. Yeah, Nowhere was, else in the yeah, world. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, speaking um, of crazy stories, you've crazy been running stories. a New York City art gallery for 35 years. I imagine you've imagine seen you've and seen heard and experienced plenty of crazy things. Of crazy Are there any things? particularly like wild stories that you care to share? Oh my God, so many. Here's a good one. There's a wonderful uh, contemporary surrealist uh, named Kirk Reinert. I mean, he was coming up, you know, um, to a deadline and he had to deliver paintings and he's not a very prolific painter. So he, there weren't going to be a lot of paintings anyway. And he was quite distressed because he's such a good hearted soul and his neighbor was going on holiday or something and asked him to babysit her two snakes. And he had an extra guest room. So she said that they're happy in a bathtub, and that's where they lived. So um, he, he let them, you know, he said, okay, fine. And he went. He was out doing some errands, and so she dropped the snakes off and went out of town. When he came back, he found two banana anacondas that were about eight inches in diameter. Oh, my God. So then she didn't come back. And, you know, she put all these big dead rats in his freezer, you know, so that he he knew how to feed them. And one day, this was right before the show, you know, um, at the time that um uh, that I started the story. So fast forward to the, you know, coming up to the deadline of the show. You know, he put his hand in there with one of these big rats and one of the snakes wrapped itself around his arm. And he had a hell of a time getting away from it. And he was scared. And so he called up a, you know, a, a vet and, and the guy said, oh, my God, like, are you crazy? This is so dangerous. You know, they, they can like eat you, oh or, you know, suffocate you. So he got this special glove and, um, you know, he's like I said, he's a golden hearted man. So he wasn't going to, you know, eat them or anything. And um, but he was very concerned. And uh, by this time, these snakes were 12 inches in diameter. They were oh. monsters. Oh, my gosh. And so I said, okay, Kirk, I'm going to help you with this. I, ta- I gave one of my interns this project, and um, she made some calls. And they wanted – they said that these snakes were too small. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> critical thinking, critical thinking time. And so I ordered this small football on eBay. And then I had Kirk photograph the snakes with the football so that it changed the proportion. You know, it made the snakes look like they were like, you know, 20 inches in diameter. And so uh, the intern immediately, you know, um, you know, had some takers for these snakes and they were going to be in a good home and a nice zoo. Somebody came to pick them up and, you know, there was a nice letter, but possession is nine tenths of the law. In any case, at the end of the day, Kirk had his bathroom back, um, the show got painted, and the zoo got a couple of snakes that, you know, were not quite as big as they thought. <laughs> I think the point of the story is that, you know, a gallerist's job 
is really an incredible thing. And there are no boundaries, you know, there's, you know, because artists are extraordinary people and, you know, you just have to be prepared to, you know, to help in a plethora of ways because it's necessary. Just have to be prepared to face some anacondas every now and then. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know that's funny, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's incredible. I, that's I don't know what I would do in that situation. Right like, <laughs> but it was a good idea, right? The mini football. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I feel like that's only something that someone who deals with the visual so much would come up with because <laughs> you understand how you can kind of yeah. play with the visual. With yep. Yeah, that's a great story. One of the things that I have done over the years that um, I feel really proud of, like because I've just put together this timeline that we're um, we're going to put on vinyl up on a wall and uh, for this exhibition, I've looked at all of these benefits because I've always had fun putting together an exhibition with you know and, and creating synergy with a charitable organization and making a donation or a contribution that helps to make the world a better place. You know, after 35 years, the total contributions is is close to um, a quarter of a million dollars, and I'm really proud about that. I think one of the most lucrative shows for for a charity that we did was in a collaboration with Yoko Ono. Yoko. um, Yoko. I have a Yoko story. You want a Yoko story? Yeah, we definitely want a Yoko story. (laughs) Well, she's, she's, you know, quite extraordinary. And, you know, before John was a musician, he was an artist. And I, I don't know if you know this, um, and, and I want to preface the Yoko story with this because it's such a great thing to know. When John proposed to Yoko, she said to him, maybe, she said, draw what our lives will look like. And so John created a series of um, beautiful illustrations that were describing visually what their life was going to be like. And, of course, they were going to be married people, so some of these were erotic. And um, there was an exhibition in a London gallery that had these illustrations on display. And uh, it was a long time ago. And believe it or not, this is really hard to hear, but the police came. And they took the, the the drawings off of the wall, and they started to burn them. Oh my! I can you, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, not uh, most of them were were destroyed, but some, and some of them weren't. And they were photographed um, so that um, they they were later recreated as a um, portfolio of fine art prints. And as a matter of fact, the MoMA has one of these portfolios in their archives. But um, John became so outraged about this whole thing that he spent millions of dollars of his own money and at this point he had he was loaded because he was making music and he you know he was doing this in the u.s courts and he was fighting for artistic freedom and he won so john lennon you know with a good amount of money and a number of years over a number of years he won artistic freedom for artists around the world. And it was a huge contribution for um, artistic freedom and, you know, something that not everybody knows. But in any case, um, I just wanted to preface the Yoko story with that because that was a really big deal. And that's one of the reasons um, that I was so happy to have this collaboration because it was a celebration with what would have been his 75th birthday. Putting the show together with Yoko was kind of special because she could only talk about things and have meetings on Tuesdays. And if the stars were misaligned, she could take the meeting 
but you couldn't have an answer until the following Tuesday. And this is I real. I love her so this is much. Yeah. Yeah, and the benefit was for um, hungry people in in New York City, and that was her choice. So yeah, that was a that was a Yoko show. And then um, when I had the grand opening in Soho, it was a big fat benefit for Broadway Cares, and um, they do so much to help families of people with AIDS. And 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 the whole exhibition was um, on the heels of the grand opening of Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. And so we had the whole cast in the sh- in the uh, in the gallery, and Anne Hould Ward was the Tony Award-winning costume designer, and her, all of her concepts were were up on the wall. It was really an interesting exhibition, but it was a wonderful way to open the Soho Gallery. And let's see, when we when we launched the Peanuts paintings in 1997, John Waters was in the gallery. For that and so was Mike Tyson. Seriously, Corey, Natalie, the guy's neck was as big as my waist. <laughs> Another benefit that was fun was after 9/11, and it was a benefit for the families of firefighters because the local hook and ladder firehouse lost everybody. After 9/11, there were tanks and and um, army guys with uh, machine guns on Broom Street, on my street, and that was the quarantine area you know, to, to block off everything around 9-11. So it was really close. So the the benefit was with David Willardson, who was a pop art um, Disney painter, and um, his girlfriend, Michelle Schacht, who's a um, a pretty renowned singer who is also a political activist. And, and they, he did a performance painting, and then the fire truck came up to the gallery, and they accepted the painting. And then they took David and I on a ride all around Soho in the fire truck. And we got to, you know, to honk the horn. And <laughs> that was, that was fun. But we raised a lot of money for those, um, for those families. That was nice. Yeah. That's amazing. You want to hear about another benefit? Huh? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we launched Toys for Tots with Whoopi Goldberg. And Whoopi came into the gallery with her assistant, Stoney, who at like, I don't know, it was like 10.45 a.m. And the guy smelled like pot so big. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Whoopi is the coolest. I mean, she's just, she is such a wonderful human being. You know, I really enjoyed meeting her. And she, actually, she's a, she's an animation collector. Oh, really? Uh, as well. That's yeah. interesting. Just when you think Whoopi um, can't get any cooler. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I thought so, you were going to uh, say, yeah, just we... when you think you know everything about Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> oh, I know oh. I don't know everything about Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> and I like it that way. And we launched Toys for Tots uh, nationally, that event, um, in a wow. collaboration with Warner Brothers. Yeah. Another benefit for Nordoff Robbins with Gibson Guitars. And there was a live auction on Yahoo. They sponsored it. And um, we launched a like an art guitar program, and the whole wall, it was, and it was a big gallery, was filled with guitars, and the guitars were used as canvases. They were delivered raw, raw wood to the artists, and then they were sent back to Gibson, and they finished them and acrylic them and everything. Leroy Neiman did one, Ralph Bakshi, a lot, a lot of the artists in our stable, and then some uh, renowned contemporary artists um, did one as well. But it, it was really interesting. And um, Conan O'Brien came to that show, and I had like heels on, I don't know, five-inch heels or something, and I came up to his nipples. I mean, the guy <laughs> is so big. 
Okay, here's a good one. You're going to like this one. We had the biggest exhibition and sale for the art of Tim Burton in the, you know, on the planet. And it opened on the heels or right before the MoMA exhibition, which was the most popular exhibition at MoMA in the history of MoMA. And uh, it was wonderful. We had original puppets from um, Corpse Bride and Nightmare Before Christmas. We had a lot of the conceptual storyboards. We had paintings and ceramic pieces and some really interesting things that, remember he was married to Priscilla? Well, when they broke up, she had this yard sale in L.A., and um, somebody went and like bought all of Tim's art, and so we acquired it from from this yard sale. And so, <laughs> you know, That's Tim hilarious. is very possessive about his artwork. Like he's got it all. He actually, there was a lawsuit with his parents to get it all out of their house. I don't know anything about that. I don't know any of the sordid details, but I just know that he's very possessive of it. So in any case, um, you know, all of the animators that came in for the MoMA exhibition. Uh, we're in the gallery and, um, you know, we were having wine with them and they were impressed with a beautiful collection that we had. I had been talking to Tim's agents for like eight months, you know, because I, re- I wanted to do something with him at the Chateau. Ooh, that so would be finally, finally eerie. I know. So finally, I, uh, you know, we had this rendezvous and, um, he was coming in this kind of a, a secret door. Um, at the opening at, at the, at MoMA, you know, up in the gallery. And so I was waiting there and finally he comes in and I am four and a half feet away from him and I see him. And then this big man steps in and puts his arm around Tim. And I thought, Oh God, this is like Tim's long lost cousin or their brothers or something. And, and he starts to talk about how great it is to see you. And I love you so much. And he's like super physical and intimate with him. And then I look at Tim's face and the blood is draining out of his face. And I can, then I realize that he does not know this creepy fanboy. Oh no. And Tim, Tim bends his knees. He gets down, escapes the, the, you know, the hold and he just bolts and he runs. (laughs) So that was the closest I ever got to Tim Burton. (laughs) You got to see him in fight or flight mode. On a scale of one to 10, being disappointed, I was like a 12. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story though. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, Tim, if you're listening. amazing. As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk. We had a um, a wonderful benefit, um, Maurice Sendak. Also speaking oh, of Maurice MoMA, Sendak. because this was um yeah we represented him exclusively from 2009 until he passed away in 2012. And um, what a beautiful, amazing, incredible man he is. And I just I miss him. He was an incredible artist, and even until you know till the very end, he was he was working every day. And I remember one time I brought my daughter um, to a studio in Connecticut and she was just sitting, you know, where he sits at his table. And she was just trying to absorb the creative spirit that she felt in the room. <laughs> and Maurice said, 
you know, he would say, well, do you like this? What do you think? What do you think about this? You know, and so he still had this really sincere insecurity about his work being great, even, you know, at the very end. And of course it was magnificent, you know, it was completely magnificent, but uh, the exhibition had the, the only bronze that he's ever done and a collection of wonderful concept paintings for the, the opera set that he did for the, uh, where the wild things are. And most of them we sold to, um, the Morgan Library after the show. So they're in the permanent collection over there. It was a big show. It was just so, it was so wonderful. And, uh, you know, he let Spike Jones create this f- feature movie for Warner Brothers. And Maurice said, just go have fun. You know, I don't want to have any artistic, uh, give you any artistic direction. And mm-hmm. what Spike Jones did with it was very interesting. I don't know if you saw it. It was it's yeah, pretty I, disturbing. Yeah, I, I love that movie. Yeah, and I love that book. Be. I do, too. Yeah. I do, too. Uh, in any case, um, after after the show, there was a um, a wonderful feature article in Time magazine with Maurice sitting there with this um, bronze. This bronze will be part of the the 35th anniversary exhibition here in the gallery, and it's also on a tour with the uh, retrospective of Maurice Sendak um, that was launched in 2012 in California at a museum, and it's toured museums and uh, literary venues around the United States, and it's going to, oh, actually, it's in London now. It's a wonderful exhibition of Maurice's work, and i um, proud to say I curated it, and, uh, you know, I think that a lot of people have really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure and an honor to be able to, to put that show together because Maurice and I pulled the artwork for the, the big show in the gallery. So, What advice would you give to a young person who aspired to be a successful gallery owner like yourself? In this day and age, it's a very interesting moment because so many emerging artists are completely available to, to the public and on Instagram. And it's, it's difficult for galleries. I mean, you know, rent, you know, in a, in a great location is, you know, is a big nut. You know, it's driven a lot of galleries out of Soho and up into Tribeca and Chelsea and uptown and, you know, Brooklyn. So if, if a gallery is paying a small amount of rent, then they have to be at pop-up shows and those are expensive. So I guess a, a, some good advice to start with is have a, you know, have a lot of money, you know, before <laughs> you, before you launch the project. It's true. Because, I mean, if you do a pop-up in, in Miami, it's six figures. And, um, you know, yeah. And, you know, and if you're running a gallery with the, the rent and the staff and the insurance and the, you know, they're just like on and on, it's a lot. And so there needs to be some kind of balance, you know, in a relationship with an artist. It's almost like the old relationship platform has evolved and it's in this nebulous place right now. Because what's happening on Instagram is that if somebody comes into a gallery and they see something that they really like, they can reach out to that artist on Instagram. And if that artist mm-hmm. responds and says, thank you very much, I'm glad you like my work, that's a very different kind of a relationship that a gallery can have with this person mm-hmm. than, oh, I'm glad you like it. If you want a blue one, let me know and, you know, you can commission it from me. Mm-hmm. So a gal- if a gallery is being 
used as um, like an advertising venue or to provide exposure for an artist who's going to compete with the gallery, then it's very dangerous. You know, so mm-hmm. I would say to an aspiring gallerist, make sure that you are working with artists who are going to support your endeavor so you can both put on the table the drive and the passion and the sincere intention that's going to create success for both of you because it's a partnership. It's got to be a partnership. Yeah, that's great advice. Have you found just in the art world, um, are galleries figuring out different ways to kind of adapt to that situation you just described? Like are are galleries coming up with new ways to engage with things like Instagram and, and work with these social media platforms in a certain way or on the slightly opposing side like writing up legal documents or such to prevent artists from kind of undercutting them like well i think normally in an event agreement that you know that that is something that is standard but enforcing it is Mm -hmm. a fiasco you know i think that so much of it comes down to integrity and a sincere alignment with you know with, with intention and you know i can't speak for other galleries and what they're doing everybody's on instagram you know or or you don't even exist you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know and support from an artist on instagram is valuable as well so it's a, it's a good question but you know it's um you know i think that it just depends on who's who mm-hmm. yeah if you had to choose do you have an all-time favorite animator illustrator artist Mm. either that you've worked with or not just that you enjoy their work we understand how sticky this question is because we get asked it as well so feel free to be as big as that's funny funny you said sticky because one of the artists that i show is sticky monger and she (laughs) has done some monumental vinyl installations up on the 69th floor of the fifth world trade center building that spotify recently released but she did this a phenomenal installation here on one of my 15 foot walls. And then in the vacant space, we put these Tondo like round canvas paintings and, you know, they, they were sold, but it was just a really exciting presentation. And there were two of her paintings that are coming in for the 35th show, two new paintings. And I bought one this morning before I got on the phone with you. Oh, so really? speaking of sticky. So today <laughs> sticky Monger is my favorite artist as far as animation goes. I love Mary Blair. I really love Tim Burton's work. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the the technical virtuosity of some of the painters that, that I show, like um, Bill Carman is just, he blows my mind, you know, and, and he'll paint things with two hair brushes sometimes. And he's just, <laughs> um, and, and the sculptor, um, Pierre Matter, he's one of the French artists. He's like the granddaddy of steampunk. Like I, it, it, the work is mind-boggling. I, I feel that over the decades, like all of the artists that that I've shown have been brought on board because, in my mind, they were unique. There was a, a big, like expressionism and something that was real that was transferred through the artist onto the paper, onto the canvas, and that was intact. If it moves you, if it moves me, and it's it just has that life within it, that's really exciting to me. You know, I just, if I respond to it viscerally, that rocks my socks. <laughs> Do you feel like getting to know some of the artists and illustrators that you have helps you cultivate a deeper connection and understanding of their work? 
Of course. Um, you know, and I've had, and I've bonded with, you know, so many artists over the, over the years. And I feel like there have been a couple of actually, you know, in, in recent years, some burnt bridges because there was a painting that was scratched. You know, there was one show that was weak. And I feel like as a gallerist, there is, you know, the expectations that an artist has have to be met with like an element of, of forgiveness. <laughs> You know, because, I, you know, when when this painting was scratched, I was thinking about, wow, you know, like we did a thousand things right. And like I didn't personally scratch the painting, of yeah. course, but the painting was scratched. And so, you know, it just becomes this monumental St. Everest. And then the thousand things that were were great, you know, are somehow not the focus. And maybe it's just the political climate that we are, you know, wallowing in right now. It just seems to be kind of a moment in the history of of, of the country if you listen to news. So I just don't listen to news anymore. <laughs> I just stop. You're not you're not alone in that. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to be very selective. I mean, I stay informed, but definitely intentional news breaks are necessary. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you want to live a uh, healthy life at this point reminders of objectivity it's like reading the news without letting it rock your world yeah (laughs) before we wrap up is there anything else that you would like to say about afa about your exciting new exhibition that's going on well um as far as this exhibition i'm i'm just super excited about it because uh, when I stood back and just looked at the collective work, it's wonderful to see the the thread that goes through it and to to just step back and consider the milestones. And, you know, I feel really happy and honored to know all of these people and to be a part of the process to promote art and culture. And I guess we have um, a lot of different choices in our lives. and. I'm really grateful that I have been in this environment and in this crazy industry and just surrounded by so much creative spirit, you know, and it's been fun. It's been a wild ride, you know, and I've been really busy and sometimes overwhelmed, but it's been really good. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it from the story. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for, for sharing your wild ride with us. I feel like we just got a tiny okay. peek, but. <laughs> yeah. Actually, there's one thing I will, I'll tell you about a future event that's really wild and I'm super excited. Um, a new artist that um, has come on board um, fairly recently, Crystal Wagner, creates sculptures with paper that she paints and cuts and mounts onto wire armatures and you know they're kind of organic and figurative but you know they're kind of abstract and some of the sculptures are encased and some of them are free form and this is one facet of what she does and what she really does is these monumental installations with hot air balloon fabric um, a couple of weeks ago, she did something in L.A. for Nike that was huge. I, I, I don't know if she was wrapping a building. Or, I mean, I don't know what she was doing. But now she's in Romania, and she is wrapping a building. And then she's going to be in um, in Shanghai in a couple of weeks doing another monumental exhibition. If you Google Crystal Wagner, you will see she does with these monumental projects, and it's mind-boggling. We're in looking at it right now. In 2019, oh, my God. In 2019, 
She's coming to live in France at the castle during the month of June. And she is going to do a monumental installation on the castle. Oh, and my in goodness. The prison, I was hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm very excited. Um, in the prison gallery, um, there's a, a, about a 15-meter panel. And um, she's going to do something on that. And in the vacant space, there will be paperworks that will be encased that are going to be for sale. And we're working right now on creating some um, small tabletop sculptures. And what else are we doing? There's going to be some wonderful prints in the principal gallery, along with some more of her paper pieces. So it's going to be a major exhibition. She's going to have the whole entire castle. And she's super excited. And when you meet her, it's, she's like, I guess she's eccentric maybe, but she's just this incredible being who moves. She physically moves back and forth and uh, like a pendulum and her hands are going up and around. And so she's constantly involved in three dimensions. You know, it's just the way that her brain processes information and she's just full of creative spirit and the color in her work is astonishing and beautiful. And so I'm, I'm very excited about this. So, yeah, that's happening. That's going to be very cool. We've been kind of perusing her work as you've been talking, and it's pretty incredible. We'll actually um, link some of it down below for our listeners in the show notes if you want to check her out. But, yeah, these just, like, massive installations, they're beautiful. <laughs> Can you imagine her wrapping the castle? Can you imagine? I can't. Like, (laughs) in the best way, can't. Yeah, I can't because it's just going to be so incredible. That's exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, you should definitely keep us posted. I would love to see how that turns out for sure. I (laughs) know. We're planning a French trip in our head. (laughs) (laughs) That's an excellent idea. Yeah, 2019. Yeah. Art History Babes do French castles. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your awesome stories with us, Heidi. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been really fun. You're welcome, Art History Babes. <laughs> Art History Babes. <laughs> Good luck with the opening and with all of your upcoming accomplishments. This has been a very exciting to talk about. And I I hope it's given some of our listeners kind of an idea of what's going on in the art world right now and the different things you can kind of do and the super exciting life that you could lead as a potential gallerist or gallery owner. Yeah, it's an extraordinary career for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Make sure to... Head over to our Instagram, Twitter, all of our social media. We're on YouTube now. We just hit YouTube. So everybody check that out. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, be sure to email us, arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much. And thank you again, Heidi, for being here. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. From Am I pontificating too much? I think so.
Geico presents, oh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> the Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit Geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.